0: Before we get into Romans 15, uh, let's just take a moment to pray together. I think it's always good for us to pray before we begin. Gracious God, you are our Father, you are our Creator. As we've learned about through Romans, you are the one who has chosen us, you have called us before the foundation of this world. Father, you sent Christ, your Son, to take our punishment to pay the the penalty that we deserved so that you could declare us as righteous. And you've called together for yourself, your church. You've given us the Holy Spirit to work in us towards change, to reach unbelievers with the gospel and be witnesses across this world. Father, we see how you've orchestrated this plan, and it is a perfect plan, and so we are thankful for it. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful that in this perfect plan, we wait your return and that as we wait your return, we as Eternal City Church seek to do the work of your mission, do the work of your ministry. And so we ask for prayer as we do that. And we want to think specifically as we pray for individuals in our city, individuals in Wilkinsburg, in the neighborhoods surrounding Wilkinsburg, that those who are living in these places that they would come to Christ, that they would understand and believe the gospel, and that you would use Eternal City Church and other churches who teach and preach this gospel to reach out to in love and reach out to and care for them and, and share the gospel with them, share this good news that Jesus has done to those who have never heard, and that there would be a true and a genuine revival that takes place in Pittsburgh, and that would spread across our entire country and ultimately our entire world. Father, it can seem so bleak when we look at the news or follow the trajectory of where our society is going, but we understand and we believe that you are more powerful and your gospel of grace is bigger than any social movement. Your your gospel is bigger and greater than anything that we could possibly see on TV that would make us discouraged or anxious. You can cut through all of those things and save millions. In this work you do, in this work, we ask God that you would see people discipled, baptized, and added to the church. We know how much you value the church. You want people joined to us. You want people covenanted with your church. And so we ask that you would add members to Eternal City, not because we would seek to desire a kingdom or build something here that we can prop up as of our own work and our own doing, but because we want people to thrive in their Christian faith. And, and the way you've designed for us to do that is in community. And so we ask there would be people who would join and become members of Eternal City Church. As we continue in prayer, Father, we want to think of the different ministries that we have, the different ministry leaders within our church. Father, we pray for the elders of Eternal City that you would give wisdom and faithfulness in this work to shepherd and care for these people. You would give grace and humility that we would shepherd well, that we would shepherd with humility, caring for and loving all of the people at Eternal City Church. We pray for the worship team that they would be united in their planning as they, they work through how to lead us in worship and be encouraged that their efforts of practice every week, come, coming early, making sure everything's right before worship is a valuable time and it serves the church as we worship you corporately. Father, we pray for ECC kids and for the nursery. We pray for the leaders and the teachers there even right now, we pray that those, that, as Chris teaches, even the youngest among us, that they would hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Father, we pray for the deacons. We pray that they would have strength to serve and strength to lead. So much of what they do goes unnoticed, even down to the, the very chairs we're sitting in and the, the very fact that we're able to meet here is a testament to the work that they do. And so we want to pray for them for strength. Father, we pray for the the homeless ministries and the food ministries we have. Thank you for those who are are leading that. Thank you for those who are, are working every month to meet a physical need for those who have no food and yet also seeking to meet a spiritual need by sharing the gospel with them. Some of those marginalized parts of our society are there that can hear the gospel and potentially believe. Give strength to those who work in that ministry. Father, we pray for women's equip, thankful for how you've grown that ministry where women are getting together on a regular basis, digging into the word of God, studying scripture and finding a common bond in the gospel. Thank you that that has grown and continued to develop. Father, there is much more we could pray for. There are many more things that we could bring before you at this time, but before we finish, Father, we want to ask for one final thing, that as we look at your scripture tonight and we see Romans 15, that we would walk away with a greater knowledge of what your word has to say, a greater love and an affection for you, and a greater appreciation for your church. We pray all these things in the power of the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you could find your way to Romans chapter 15, I don't have the the clicker with me, so if someone could just move my slide one over. Um, There's only one slide. I know that's like sacrilege. Someone told me that's not allowed. Um, But only one slide. It's just the text. It'll be up on the screen. If you do have your Bibles with you, Romans chapter 15. If you don't, it will stay up on the screen for the entirety of the sermon. If you've been tracking with us through Romans or you have a familiarity with the book, we are coming to Paul's final transition. He has moved through many different topics and themes, many different stages of theology, many different aspects of practical things that he is giving us. And yet he makes this final transition where he's going to start to finish the book. He's really scaling the book down to, to get to that final point. So we are on the home stretch. This is the the final lap of Romans. We'll be in Romans from now until right before Christmas. We'll take a few weeks for Advent, and then we're on to something else. So if you've been anticipating since April of 2021, when will Romans be finished? A few short months, and we will be done. But it starts here. It's this transition in Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 21, where Paul is going to start to wind down his letter. And he's going to talk about some things related to the church, related to us, and ultimately what we'll see is related to the gospel. You know, inherent in all of us is a drive and a desire to be something, to be part of something bigger, to be part of something that we feel makes a difference in this world, has an impact. We want to leave a legacy. We want to be part of something big. And that desire can lead us sometimes negatively, sometimes positively. Negatively, we wrestle with being satisfied with where God has us in our current state, in the current moment of life that we're in, and so we grow discouraged because we feel like we need to be part of something bigger, part of something more, and so we grow discontented and we grow discouraged because of that. Positively, we are seeking to pursue a connection to something bigger, and so we focus on good things and right things and growing the church and building the church and building up the people of God. And so we seek to make a great impact for God in what we do. And so positively this inherent desire to be part of something bigger results in good. So some will fulfill this desire through connections to work, connections to a company. They'll invest themselves, their time and energy into doing stuff for work, They'll invest their time and energy into politics, being part of some political movement. Probably the easiest example that a lot of us could relate to or we have seen either personally or we've observed in other people is sports. You want to connect yourself to something big, you connect yourself to a sports team. It goes so far as when people talk about sports, they'll talk about we. We scored that touchdown. We won that game. I didn't run on a field, I didn't hit the baseball, I did none of those things, but we did because I'm part of this bigger thing than me. We have this inherent drive and desire to do that. For those who know me, who have heard me preach before, this is where I drop in making fun of the Steelers. Um, I'm not gonna tell a joke this time, so use your imagination, think about what I would say, plug it in and then apply it to the eventual six-win-stealer team you're about to experience this season. Um. (laughs) I couldn't help myself, I'm sorry. The wonderful thing for us as Christians is that we are connected to something bigger it is greater than sports, it is greater than politics, it is greater than the company we work for, or whatever hobbies or things we're a part of, we are connected to something bigger than ourselves because we are part of the church. And if you step back from that and you really evaluate what does the church mean as a movement, you are talking about something that is multi-generational, thousands of years in the making, that spans more languages, nations, and peoples than anything in this world. The church is more diverse than any country in this world. And so there's nothing more significant and more impactful than actually being part of the church. And so because we are connected to the church, because we are connected to Christ who connects us to the church, we are part of something much bigger, much greater than ourselves. And it is the greatest and most important thing that's happening on this earth. Charles Spurgeon is a famous 19th century preacher. He describes this kind of concept in this way. He says that the church is the dearest place on earth. And I would love for us as we walk through Romans 15, 14 to 21, to be able to say when we leave that for us, the church is the dearest place on earth and we grow in our affection and our love for the church. And as we want to do this, I want to focus on one predominant theme, and that's this. It's a little long, so I'll say it twice. I want us to focus on the motivation of our lives should be about boasting in the beauty of the church. That the motivation of our lives should be about boasting in the beauty of the church And then work to share the beauty of the church with those who have never heard. We're going to look at three reasons why. I'll spell them out here and then we'll get into each of them. The first reason why we should boast in the beauty of the church is because of God's role in the mission of the church. Second reason is the purpose of the mission of the church. And the third is our role in the mission of the church. The first reason is God's role in the mission of the church. specifically verses 14 to 16. I'll read them. It says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul begins to wrap up this letter, and as a reminder, as we think about what we've seen through the book of Romans so far, Paul has never met these Christians. He has never met the church at Rome. So his relationship is a little bit different, because he does know individuals in that church. We actually see that in chapter 16. He specifically knows two individuals, Prisca and Aquila. And so he has heard about this church, but he doesn't know this church intimately. And if we recall what Paul's purpose is, again, he'll get to this in chapter 16, but he references it in chapter 1, he is looking to come to the church at Rome and use that as a basis to actually launch off and go to Spain. Go into Spain and continue his missionary work in the country of Spain and start to plant churches there. So, you read these words and you get this sense that Paul is being very diplomatic. Again, he's never met these individuals. He doesn't know them intimately. He knows some things about them clearly by what he says, but he's being diplomatic because he seeks to have a relationship with them. So he's he's coming to them with encouraging words. And he says, "I myself am satisfied about you." Why? says it there in verse 14, you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. What he's talking about for the people in the church of Rome, for the Roman Christians, he's saying, there's something about you that's different. You have been changed by something. You are different than you once were. And so I can say these things about you not having intimately known you because I know about you that you have been changed. If we think back to things we've learned in Romans, go to Romans chapter 1 specifically, how does Paul describe the depraved individual there? Someone who is full of knowledge? No. Someone who knows of God but doesn't glorify God as God. Someone who is aware of who God is and yet seeks to serve themselves and worship themselves and worship other things. They are are not good. We went through a, a sermon just on the topic of total depravity. The idea that we are inherently sinful, that everything that we have touched is tainted by sin. Everything in us is tainted by sin. That doesn't mean we can produce no good, But it does mean that everything that we have touched, everything that we have, our emotions, our thoughts, our behaviors, are all tainted by sin. And that was our condition before Christ, and that was the Romans' condition before Christ. But he says, for you, it's different. You've been changed. No longer are you depraved, you are, what does he say? Full of goodness. The idea there is not that there is some goodness within them that has come out. But if you go to verse 13, it says that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The goodness he's describing here is brought about by and really is seen in the person of the Holy Spirit. The fact, that, the fact that the Roman Christians have the Holy Spirit means there is goodness in them. It's not a goodness that is of their own doing. It is a goodness that has been given to them because of the work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that needs to be very clear. He's not speaking of goodness inherent in them based on who they are, but it is a goodness that has been granted to them based on what Christ has done. So there is a a hope for change to no longer live in this depraved, evil state, but now be changed to what Paul would say is good. Notice what else he says. He says, they've been changed, and so now there's, there's goodness because of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you are filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. These are very encouraging words that Paul's giving. Again, Paul's being very diplomatic here. If, if we were to read Galatians, this is not his tone. His tone with the Galatians is one of, you have, you have strayed away from the faith, and he is beating them with the spiritual two-by-four to put them back in line. Here he's not doing that. He's saying, you have this goodness in you. You are filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another, being very encouraging. And I think that's how we need to take it ourselves. When we read this, it's not one of beating ourselves up about being not good enough. It's to say, as a Christian, we are in this state of goodness. We are filled with knowledge, able to instruct others. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. So we can use these words as encouraging things as well. I want to say a couple things before we move on to verse 15 when he says that you are filled with all knowledge, he isn't talking about general information about the world. He isn't even talking about an intellectual, only an intellectual understanding of God. He's actually talking about this goodness, this knowledge flowing out of this goodness that's in us is a knowledge of an intimate knowing of God, an intimate knowing of Him. Again, you contrast it with Romans 1. He says that they were people who knew of God. They had this awareness of God, but they didn't know God. So when he says you're filled with all knowledge, what he's saying is you have been filled with all of these aspects and ideas of the, of, of the Christian faith seen in the knowledge you have in relation with God. So there's a relational aspect here. It's not simply intellectual assent to who God is, to an awareness of him, but it is a relational knowledge of God, not just knowing of God, but actually knowing God. Very distinct things. Remove one little word, and it changes the whole meaning of that phrase. So filled with all knowledge happens... The change there happens, so we are changed by God. The Holy Spirit gives us this goodness. We become filled with all knowledge. How does that happen? It happens ultimately through, primarily through Scripture, but it happens through our experiences, through our hardships, through our struggles. It includes all of those things in totality that speak to how we learn of the goodness and the graciousness and the kindness of God. Full knowledge is received when we meet God in the darkest moments of our lives and he cares for us and he comforts us. When we are are at the lowest points in our lives and he pulls us out of those things, that's when we experience and we see who God actually is. Because we can know of him. We can have all the right facts about God. But if when we're at our lowest point, we don't meet God there, We don't truly know the God who can take us out of that. Let's be encouraged by these words. Because if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, which is goodness in you. And many of us don't believe that there's good in us, but there is, and it's there because of Christ. Our flesh is sinful. We battle and war against that flesh every single day. But the Spirit is good, and the Spirit lives in us if we are believers. So first thing is, as Christians, we are being filled with this knowledge that is overflowing out of this relationship with Christ. The second thing would be that everything you are learning is not only for you. Look at what he says. You are filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. The struggles you have, you can use to comfort others who are also struggling. The hardships you have overcome, you can help others in overcoming those. The things you've learned from studying scripture, you can use to help others learn as well. God is filling us with all knowledge to the point that we can instruct and care for other people. You know, we are a small church, small congregation. If I went back the last two years, there are countless hurts, countless pains, countless hardships For a small church to experience, I feel like it's a lot. Those who have gone through all of those things with us, it is a lot. Face large amounts of hurt, large amounts of struggles and hardships. But what I want to do is say, I am encouraged by you. I'm encouraged by your faithfulness. I'm encouraged that even in the midst of hardships, men are stepping up to try to be better fathers and better husbands. Women are being seeking to be better wives, better mothers. You're seeking to be better church members and better and more faithful Christians where you are, even in the midst of all these things, because what you're learning is changing you. The experiences you're going through are changing who you are and in a good way. Why? Because there is goodness in you that is overflowing out of you. So you're learning to be a better church member. Why? Because of the things you're learning through all of your experiences, through all the things you're studying in scripture, through everything that's happening in your life. So I'm encouraged by you. And I think we can walk away encouraged by one another that, through all the difficulties and the circumstances and the hardships, you're still here. Your faith has not failed. You're still holding on to the one who rights all wrongs, who will clean up all messes one day, Jesus Christ. You're still clinging to him. I'm encouraged and excited when I hear about people who are going out to coffee or lunch or dinner together just living life together and not with, not with rose-colored glasses on where they see only the good stuff and not with, not with someone only telling all the good stuff, but genuinely living life together where they're saying things are hard, life isn't always going as expected, but ultimately God is good. I'm encouraged by that. Are we perfect? No. The imperfection starts here for anyone that's wondering. Are we perfect? No. But we are good because of the Holy Spirit. We are filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. One final thing I want to say. Don't shortchange yourself. It's so easy to do. Don't shortchange yourself in your experiences thinking that you have nothing to offer to the body of Christ. That you have nothing to offer to Eternal City Church. Because what God is teaching you through scripture, experiences, hurts, pains, whatever it is, be encouraged that God will use it to minister to other people. And we need to be reminded of that. In fact, that's why Paul writes. He, writes in, he says in verse 15, I've written boldly to you by way of reminder. So I want to encourage us, continue on in this. Continue on doing this. That even in the hurts and the struggles and the pains, continue on in sharing life with others and encouraging other people and instructing other people with how to live. Now, some of you might be thinking, your point was God's role in the mission of the church. How is any of this connected to God's role in the mission of the church? And the answer I'll give is, all of it is, everything is. Because everything that Paul is describing in this one little verse of being filled with goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another is a big giant summary of what the church is all about. It's a summary of what is happening in normal discipleship and behavior within a church. The church is a gathering of people who God has called to himself. He's assembled for himself a people that he's called the church and the church in the church God is in the business of changing people. And he's changing people how? By giving them the Holy Spirit, filling them with knowledge, instructing others. That's the normal pattern of the Christian life in discipleship and relationship in the church. So Paul in his ministry is seeking to fulfill the mission that Jesus gave to the church. We went to Matthew 28, which is to make disciples of all people. How are we making disciples in the church? Filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. The normal patterns of discipleship. Notice who he mentions if we look at verses 16, 17. Really 15 and 16. He says, I'm writing this because of the grace given me by God. Grace for what? says, to be a minister of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus in service of the gospel of God. What's the purpose of this? So that the Gentiles would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Who's mentioned there? You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The mission of the church, Paul's mission as he sees it, as is an outpouring of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, all present in the work of the ministry and the work of discipleship to see people change from darkness into light and ultimately moved into the ability to instruct other people. That is a triune God that has planned all of this. That is not just happenstance. That is not just random. This is the plan and the purpose of a holy God. The beauty and the glory of the church and all of her components with people filled with the Spirit, growing in knowledge, sharing life with one another, that is all the plan of a triune God. A a Father who, for infinite time past, has loved the Son. He extends that love to His creation, us, who rebelled against Him, who betrayed Him. Why does He do this? Why does he extend this love? It's because the Son, in agreement with the Father and Spirit, took on flesh, died, taking the wrath of God for us and in our place. So that, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we might have faith in the finished work of Christ. And from that act, from Christ's death on the cross, planned before the foundation of the world, the church is born. The church is born... And from there, the church is given this incredible mission. The message that a loving father and a sacrificial son and an empowering spirit can change people. That the the gospel will transform us from death to life. And he says this mission is to go share it. Share it with the person down the street, the person across town, the person across the country, to the remotest parts of the world. So, that scripture says people from every tribe and nation and tongue will be brought into him, into his family. So, the church and its mission is established, it's rooted in an outflow of a Trinitarian God, a triune God. The beauty and the glory of the church and its mission is not an afterthought, it's not a plan B. It's not a, oh, I don't know what to do next, so God set up the church. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, Paul's ministry to the Roman church, Eternal Cities Church, Eternal Cities Ministry to Wilkinsburg, Eternal Cities Ministry as far away as Uganda. Our pursuit to share Christ with neighbors, they are all part of this divine plan that Father, Son, and Spirit, in agreement, have worked together to build. So the beauty of the church is seen in God's role and the mission of the church. It's also seen in the purpose of the mission of the church. It's going to be verses 16 and 18 we'll look at. I recently actually finished a biography um, of a man. The the biography is called Fearless. Um, It was recommended to me by Gus. And it's a fantastic biography. I would recommend anyone read it. Listen to it. It's the story of a Navy SEAL by the name of Adam Brown. Pretty wild and crazy life. I won't give all the details. And even if the details I give spoil some stuff, still worth a listen. He battled drug addiction after high school, battled all of these different things, wild relationships, crazy different stuff. He eventually comes to Christ, comes to faith in Jesus, as well as the rest of his family does. And in that, he's changed, he's transformed, but he still battles these demons. He still fights all of these things. He, he falls back into his addiction multiple, multiple times. And he makes the decision, at one point along the way, he purposed to become a Navy SEAL. One of the toughest, greatest fighters that our military can produce. So he, he seeks to become a Navy SEAL and through intense training, he achieves his goal. He, he purposed to do this and he achieves his goal. Even after he becomes a Navy SEAL, he relapses back into some of his drug addictions. He really never should have even become a Navy SEAL with his background of felonies and crime and in jail. But yet he is. He faced failures along the way. He faced hardships and difficulties, but he gets through all of that training. The physical, emotional, and mental strain that he put on himself through going through this training. Why? Because he had a goal. He had a purpose. He purposed to accomplish this thing and he sought to do it because it was a good goal and a good purpose. After a few years in the Navy Seals, Adam Brown doesn't stop there. He says, no, I want to become the elite of the elite. So he seeks to join SEAL Team 6, which for those who are unfamiliar with that, they are like the elite special ops within the Navy. Becoming a Navy SEAL is tough. Becoming SEAL Team 6, only a few within the Navy are able to accomplish that. So he sets out to do this. He purposed himself to do this because he, he saw the value in what he was doing to fight for his country, to provide for his family, to achieve this goal that a fraction of a fraction of a percent of people in the world are able to achieve. Yet he does it. After weeks and weeks of training, he becomes a member of SEAL Team 6, accomplishes his goal. And I mentioned he had setbacks along the way. Some of them were self-induced. Some of them were his addictions that caused him to have setbacks. what's fascinating about this story is that after he becomes a Navy SEAL, but before he goes into training to become elite of the elite, to become SEAL Team 6, he loses his right eye in a training accident, and he loses his right hand in a military combat in an accident. So he becomes elite of the elite with one eye and one hand. Incredible. But he does it. Why? Because he has this resolve. He has this this purpose. He has this goal in mind of something that he sees as good and valuable and he wants to achieve it. And no matter what he had going on in life, the loss of an eye and the loss of a hand, he was going to achieve that goal. He understood and purposed to make sure that what he did would produce the outcome that he was looking for. In a similar sense, not entirely, you can't correlate it entirely because it's different. In a similar sense, Paul understands the purpose of the church. He understands the goal and the purpose of why the church is here and the mission that it's for. Because God, Father, Son, Spirit, has commissioned the church. And Paul knows the reason. Paul knows the reason specifically for his ministry. He says, it's the offering of the Gentiles to be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The offering the Gentiles to be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what Paul's saying is that the purpose for why God has established the church and given the church this mission is ultimately to see people sanctified, to see people changed. Good question to ask you at this point is what does it mean to be sanctified? Paul helps us here because in verse 18, he says that Christ has accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul mentions a similar idea actually in Romans 1.5 where he says that Christ has been given grace to the Gentiles for the obedience of faith or the obedience that comes from faith. So to be sanctified, verse 18, is to be obedient. This is Paul's goal in verse Verse 16. This is Christ's goal as he works through Paul in verse 18. Sanctification, sanctified, is that theological term for the process we go through to be changed. It's the process we go through to kill sin, starve our flesh, and become more obedient to Christ. And we need to remember, though, that our obedience and our sanctification is not always moving up in a straight line. It's not as though we become a Christian here and then we just continue moving on this nice, trajectory all the way up here until we die or God comes back. Instead, what it normally looks like is growth, possibly plateau, possibly dropping down a bit, going back up. It's this constant up and down, but there is a progression moving forward, but it isn't always a straight line. You're going to have times where it dips. You're going to have times where there's things you need to learn that you didn't know before, and God's going to increase your knowledge of him and change you more. And then there's going to be seasons where we're kind of feeling a little stagnant and things aren't changing much. And then we're going to see a big jump because God's really working in our hearts to change us. All of these things happening within sanctification. It's not a straight line. And it's not the same for each of us. My growth in my Christian faith is going to be different than your growth in your Christian faith the path to obedience to Christ is going to look different for each person. Regardless, though, the purpose that God has given for the mission of the church is to produce sanctified people. This is going to sound a little odd. But the mission of the church is not to produce converts. It is not only to produce converts. It's not simply to gain converts. It's to bring about sanctified people. It's not simply to see people say, okay, yeah, I believe in Jesus now, and then go live however they want. It's to say, oh, I believe in Jesus now. He's my savior, but he's also my Lord, and now I'm going to live according to how he desires me to live. Because in that, how God desires me to live, I can thrive as a Christian. Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 28, I already mentioned it, lay the foundation for this. It says, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So what is sanctification? It is truly obedience to Christ. As we grow in our obedience to Christ, we grow in being sanctified. The next question to ask is, how does this obedience come about? Paul again helps us. He says, first, it's verse 18, He says, you bring about the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. This is Paul's ministry, which he's already said is a result of grace in his life. So this word and this deed, this change that happens is brought about by the grace of God in his life. You bring about by obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, general language Paul uses for something miraculous is happening. This change to obedience happens through a miraculous thing. It's not brought about by us doing a bunch of stuff. It's brought about by God working in us. And third, he says, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God. So how does this change happen? How are we changed? How is the purpose of the church's mission fulfilled? It is done through the work of God to pour out grace to us, to miraculously transform our hearts, to desire God more and to empower us with the Spirit to kill sin and obey Christ. So our purpose in this mission is not simply conversion. God's purpose in this mission, our purpose in this mission is to see people discipled. So that again, they would not only say Jesus is my savior, but they would also say Jesus is my Lord. Just like Adam Brown knew his goal, knew what he purposed to accomplish as a Navy SEAL Paul, and by extension us, we know our goal and what a God has given us. And thankfully, Paul says, we've been empowered to do it. We've been empowered to do it by his grace and through his spirit. This brings us to our final reason to boast in the beauty of the church. The first was because of God's role in the mission of the church. The second was because of the purpose of the mission of the church. And the third is our role in the mission of the church. Verses 18 to 21 speak to this. And I want to focus only on two phrases. In verse 18, Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Verse 20, he says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. So based on all of these things, including what he says in, at the end of verse 20, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 19, that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, He's fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. For all of these things, he is making it his ambition to preach the gospel. The distance from Jerusalem to Illyricum is about equivalent to the distance from Pittsburgh to Denver. So what Paul's saying is, he traveled the distance from Pittsburgh to Denver primarily by foot, planting churches along the way, and yet when he gets to that point, he says, I make it my ambition to still preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of us would be like, it's a long way. Planted a lot of churches, dealt with a lot of messy situations, a lot of messy people. The Romans were great. Galatians were terrible. The Corinthians had their own set of issues. Worked through all of that. I'm done. I'm retiring. And yet what Paul says is, no, my ambition, my determination... My motivation in all of this is to preach the gospel because I understand what my role is in this mission. This mission that God has created and given a purpose to, I have a role in it. Paul says, all of us have a role in it. He's crafted this mission for the church to go and make disciples. He's given it a goal. He's given it a purpose. In making disciples, he see them grow and change and sanctified. He's empowered all of us. And now he says to the church, Go and do it. Paul says it is him. It is his motivation, it is him, his ambition to go and do this. And it seems so backwards to us. Because if, if it was us, we would think, God, just figure out an easier way than having a bunch of sinful people share share the gospel with people. Figure out a different way to save people. But the Bible says that God has used the foolishness of preaching that some might be saved. Paul gets this. He makes his life mission to live out the church's mission to make disciples. You know, it's, it's why one of our core commitments, I love that we read our core commitments every single Sunday. One of our core commitments is making disciples who make disciples. We understand our role. God has given, God has said we are part of this and he has given us the grace to do it. He's given us the power to do it. And he says, you play an integral, integral role in all of this. Because Paul says that he, he boasts in his ministry, not that he's boasting in himself, but he's boasting in Christ and what Christ is doing through him. So we play a, an important role in this. Because as scripture says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. But how can anyone believe without hearing? And how can anyone hear unless someone tells them? Our role in this mission is simply to do it. It's to tell others of Jesus Christ and teach them what it means to obey him. To see sanctified people in the church. By way of application, I want to ask three things. First one, will you commit to praying for people? Will you commit to praying for people in Wilkinsburg, Penn Hills, Point Breeze, Edgewood, Homewood, Regent Square? Would you commit to praying for people in those neighborhoods surrounding Wilkinsburg that they would trust in Christ and become disciples of Christ? For some of you who don't live here, still pray for Wilkinsburg as well as the towns you live in. Pull the curtain back a little bit. Um, The elders meet the first Tuesday of every month. Usually it's a meeting from about 7 to around 10 o'clock. A little longer than I would like. Chris runs the meeting. You can understand why it takes three hours. I will gladly explain this when he comes back from teaching the kids. Takes about three hours, but it's always a good time. The first hour of that meeting, typically, we spend just in prayer, talking about different things we can be praying for one another for, things in the church we can be praying for, but we spend a a huge amount of time praying. Actually, what I prayed in the beginning of before the sermon is all the things that we pray for every single month. We pray for people to come to Christ. We pray for the ministries of the church. We pray for all of you as you lead those ministries. We pray for all of these different things. And one of the things we pray for every single night or every single month is that we would see people from our community come to Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to ask. Would you commit to praying that with us? This Tuesday, we have an elder meeting. From seven to eight o'clock Tuesday evening, would you commit to pray that there would be people from Wilkinsburg, Homewood, Point Breeze, Regent Square, Penn Hills, Edgewood, any other neighborhoods you can think of surrounding our community, that there would be people there who would come to Christ? If we had the entire church from seven to eight o'clock, it doesn't even need to be the full hour, just a few minutes of time, whether you're, getting ready for the next thing you're doing tomorrow, you're sitting down to watch TV, whatever it is you're in the middle of, if you could take a few minutes and pray with us. Pray that people would be drawn to the gospel and God would save the people from this city that he desires to save. Second point of application, are you willing to sacrifice your time, your energies, and your talents and comforts for the mission of the church? If not... What's preventing you from doing it? What's stopping you from doing it? It could be fear of man. It could be fear of rejection. It could just be complacency. It could be laziness. Only you really know why it is that you can't commit to that or you're not willing to do that. Are you willing to sacrifice pride knowing that we talk to someone, we could get stiff-armed, we could get rejected by someone? Whatever it might be. Pray that God would empower you by the Spirit to live your life on mission. Pray that whatever those barriers are that are preventing you from doing this, that God would break down those things. Parents, we'll get a little more specific. Are you willing to sacrifice your children? Not physically. Of course, I don't mean physically. I'm not a psychopath. Are you willing to sacrifice your children? What I mean by that is Are you willing to allow your child who wants to move away to become a missionary in another country for the advancement of the gospel? Are you willing to encourage that in them? Are you willing to say, I will freely give of my child to to go away and maybe only see them once every few years, maybe rarely see grandchildren? But I know that their life is about the gospel and sharing that gospel in the furthest reaches of this world. Are you willing to encourage your child to be on mission, even if it means taking them away from you? Third point of application. Would you think of one person? Just one person that you have thought about or contemplated sharing Christ with. And reach out and, and to reach out with, with a goal that you would share Christ with them. Would you think of one person specifically? Make it a point to pray for them. Could be a neighbor, could be a coworker, could be a family member, could be someone that you ride the bus with, go to the gym with, could be the same person who makes your coffee every single morning. Whomever it might be, would you think of that one person begin to pray for them? Pray that their hearts would be open to the gospel, that that God would already be working to make their hearts sensitive to the truth of the gospel. And that when opportunity comes, share with them what Christ has done for you. Consider just one person. I want to finish with the gospel, because that's where Paul finishes with us. In verse 21, he says, But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see... Those who have never heard will understand you say, how does that apply to the gospel? It's the very verses we read at the beginning of our worship today, Isaiah 52, 15. This is one of Isaiah's prophecies of Jesus, that he would be the suffering servant. Jesus, Isaiah says that Jesus would be high and lifted up. Many people would be astonished at him, that he would be so disfigured in his death that people would not even recognize him as human goes on to Isaiah 53. It says that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It says he was pierced, he was crushed in our place. But by every wound he endured, we are healed. It also says there that it, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Think about that. It pleased the Father to kill the Son that he loved for eternity. Why? Why? Because from crushing the son, from his blood poured out for us, the church of Christ is born. And with all of our flaws and all of our problems, Jesus calls us his bride. And he says, one day I will present my bride sanctified, holy, blameless before the Father. This is the Jesus that we share with others who have never been told of him, who have never heard of him so that they will see and they will understand. Because you see, Jesus died for this church, and that gives us every reason to boast, not in our own achievements as though we built anything, but that Jesus is building his church. He is using his church to fulfill the mission that he has ordained. And it's because of this that we can celebrate and boast in the beauty and the glory of the church. One way we boast together is through communion. We boast together as a church through communion when we remember Christ's death until he comes. Isaiah talks about our suffering servant Jesus, that he died the death we deserved, but now he's reigning as king. Scripture tells us that he is ready to eat this meal with us one day. When his church, his bride, is taken back to him once again. At Eternal City Church, we take communion every week. Um, And I invite you, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I would invite you to join us in taking communion. Even if tonight is the first night you would say, this is the first time I have trusted in Jesus, and this is the first time I have trusted him as my Savior, I would invite you to join as your first public profession, your first profession of what Christ has done for you. If you would say, I don't know Jesus, I, I have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, or I'm not sure, I would ask you to just not participate. Not because we want to exclude you, but because we would not want you to join into something that you yourself don't believe. But if that is you, say, I have not trusted in Christ. I I do not know him as my savior and as my Lord. I would love to talk to you after we're finished. I would love to talk to you about what Jesus has done for me and what Jesus has done for you. The worship team is going to come out now. We're going to sing a song and then we'll come back and take communion together as one church.